man-to-man coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. Tuesday edition of the PFT PM Podcast, one week away from Christmas, two Sundays away from the end of the regular season. The postseason is coming. It's going to be great. It's going to be fascinating. It's as wide open as it's ever been, but for the Saints. Now, the fact that the Saints' offense hasn't been rolling up the kinds of points we had grown accustomed to, 51 here, 48 there, that maybe is going to provide some teams with hope. But right now I see the Saints, I see a gap, and then I see everybody else, including a few teams that aren't going to make it to the playoffs. That That's one of the things that I keep coming back to. In the AFC, there are going to be two viable potential Super Bowl contenders that don't make it to the playoffs between Steelers, Ravens, Titans, Colts. And in the NFC... I think maybe one potential Super Bowl contender is going to be left by the wayside because I think anyone that gets in can do damage in January, and it's going to be the Vikings or the Eagles ultimately that end up not making it. One of those two teams is going to be thinking, boy, if we had just gotten that sixth seed, who knows what would have happened. But the Saints, with two regular season games left at home, with one more win away from clinching home field advantage throughout the playoffs. They're looking at four games at home. And if they win the final two, it's going to be a trip to Atlanta for Super Bowl 53. And and at that point, when the Super Bowl arrives, who knows what's going to happen. The year they won the Super Bowl, they weren't supposed to. The Colts were favored. The Eagles weren't supposed to win last year. Anything can happen in that 160-minute window. But getting there is going to be a challenge in both conferences. And I see the AFC as wide, wide open. I see the NFC as the Saints and everybody else, but somebody out of that everybody else could maybe stun the Saints at the Superdome in the divisional round or the championship round. And the Eagles right now, it's amazing to me how they have quickly recaptured. Nobody thought, see, last year when Nick Foles came in for Carson Wentz, nobody thought Foles could do anything. And Foles played just enough early this year to make us think, yeah, that was a fluke last year. So he comes back in when Wentz gets injured in December again, and we all say, yeah, that he's not going to. He's Last year was, was I, I've been calling it the football equivalent of Slumdog Millionaire, where everything lined up just right. He was in the right place at the right time over and over and over again. And it all worked out, and that is to never be recaptured or repeated. And now... After that Sunday night game between the Eagles and the Rams, they're recapturing and repeating exactly what they did last year with the understanding that it will be very different if they pull it off this year. Because this year, it will be on the road, every round, no bye week, no home games, and it's going to be far, far different, including going to New Orleans where they lost 48-7. to I think that was like the worst loss by a defending Super Bowl champion ever, something like that. They So it's not going to be easy, but it will make it even more memorable if it happens again. And Peter King and I were talking about this on PFT Live this morning. And if you were listening or watching, thank you. Nick Foles at some point will win enough games, potentially. I'm not saying he will, as in I'm predicting it, but as we play this out, Texans this week, Washington next week. Let's say they win the last two, the Eagles do, and the Vikings slip up, and the Eagles get in as the sixth seed, and Foles takes it to Chicago and somehow wins. Takes it then to New Orleans and somehow wins. Takes it back to L.A. or to Dallas and somehow wins. There's there's one point on that ladder 
There's a rung that he's going to get to that is going to compel the Eagles brain trust to get together in a conference room, maybe cater in a lunch, extra time to talk it through and look at film and think about it and make the decisions and play out all the financial ramifications. There's some degree of success that Foles will have that will cause the Eagles to have the very difficult discussion about Foles versus Wentz as the guy moving forward. And we are closing in on just 12 days away, the point where the window opens on doing a long-term deal for Carson Wentz. For any player who is drafted, the regular season game after their third season, or the last regular season game, excuse me, of their third season, is when the window opens on negotiating a long-term deal. And last week I was on WIP in Philadelphia with John Marks and Ike Reese, and they asked me about Wentz and when would you try to sign a new contract. And the reality is, it's cheaper if you do it now. It's going to get more expensive potentially if you wait. But there is something they could do. There is a middle ground they could try to stake out here. I don't know how viable it is, though. Let's sound this out. I hadn't really thought about this before. What about paying Foles to be the starter for 2019, keeping Wentz, and delaying the decision by a year? It's kind of a cake-and-eat-it scenario. I don't know how Wentz would feel about it. I think eat it would be his response. I don't know that you'll want that. I don't know that you'll want to try to find a way to stitch together both guys. I think they're at the point. I've talked my way out of that scenario. I think we're at the point where they have to make a decision about one or the other and get rid of the other. And I, it would have been ludicrous to think especially after the two weeks that Foles started against the Falcons and against the Buccaneers, that we would even be considering Foles over Wentz. But second straight December, Wentz, due to some injury resulting in whole or in part from the way he plays the game, here's Wentz, he can't play, Foles comes in, Foles is effective. Now again, they're not there yet. I'm not saying they convene the meeting this week and order in the chicken salad sandwiches and watch the film and say, hey, we're going to keep Nick Foles. I think you want to see what Nick Foles does. But the fact that we're even on the fringes of that kind of a conversation is fascinating to me. And we'll see what happens with uh, with Foles and Wentz. And is there a chance that Foles is the starter next year and Wentz is somewhere else? It's impossible to rule it out at this point. I mean, if the, if the Eagles win the Super Bowl again, if Nick Foles ends up being the ultimate best-case scenario, the back-to-back Super Bowl MVP, how can you not keep Nick Foles and say goodbye to Carson Wentz and trade him to someone? If you get a one and a four for Sam Bradford, who had no cartilage in his knee, what could you get for Carson Wentz if he's available to a team that is desperate for a quarterback? By the way, Mark Leibovich, author of Big Game, the NFL in Dangerous Times, is going to join us on the podcast later today. I'm going to answer some of your questions. I want to talk about a few other things before we bring in Mark. This Eric Reed situation, uh, it, it really is amazing to me in this day and age, and this is a nonpartisan observation, because if anything, I'm accused of being a bleeding heart liberal and and, uh, you know, I'm I'm one of the I'm part of the problem. And, uh, you know, I've got Trump derangement syndrome, all the labels that get thrown your way. 
if uh, you say anything that suggests you are of any type of a progressive mindset. But but now I'm I'm feeling the other side of it because I'm pushing back against these complaints from Eric Reed about the random drug tests he, he's being subjected to. And he's got this belief that that the process is rigged against him and that someone is, quote unquote, randomly selecting his name intentionally. And the thing that bothers me about it, and I don't know if Eric Reed is doing this consciously, but the net result is that Reed is, I think, irresponsibly creating a cloud over the process when he has means at his disposal for blowing all that smoke out of the way and getting to the truth. And I've talked about this before, but it bears repeating. And I, th I think the problem is, in this very tribal world we now live in, people are baked into their positions and they are incapable of flexibility. And I'm a firm believer that Reed and Colin Kaepernick were the victims of collusion. But I'm not ready to say that the independent company hired by the NFLPA and the NFL to run the PED testing process has bastardized the system has rigged the random testing to target Eric Reed seven times in 11 weeks or six times. He says seven tests, but I think one was mandatory and standard and there were six random tests in 11 weeks. And I understand the probabilities of that happening are very low. There are going to be 10 guys every week tested, even if you're tested every week. If you're one of the 10, there's a chance it's going to happen. There's a chance that your number is going to come up. And I don't know how many other guys that's happened to because it's all cloaked in secrecy. And I don't know that there's an incentive for another player to raise his hand and say, oh, yeah, that happened to me, too. I don't know why you would do that, because then you're going to be perceived as being anti Eric Reed. And I, I, I just think that we retreat to our corners. We, we cling to our positions and we shout down or ignore anyone who would say anything that would burst our bubble. We want to believe what we believe regardless of the facts. And God, it drives me crazy when that happens. Somebody asked me or said to me last night on Twitter, well, you need to figure out what side you're on. Here's what side I'm on. I'm on the side of the truth and the pursuit of the truth. I'm not on anybody's side, right? I'm not a big fan of BS and there's so much BS in this world that I try to call it and explain it and show it when I can. And so as it relates to Eric Reed. To the extent that there is a suspicion. And I would say that the circumstances are enough to make you say, hmm, right? Hmm. Well, there's something you can do about it if you think you're being harassed and persecuted by the NFL. If you think it's just death by a thousand cuts, so you just opt out and quit playing football. You can file a grievance and you can challenge it. And it's not that hard to do. And... People think that the evidence would disappear, that the evidence would be impossible to track down. You get yourself a good expert who knows how to track down digital footprints and verify that the algorithm that is typically used to pick the 10 players per team was used in this case, right? If, if what we would find out is, well, that, that evidence for whatever reason is no longer available, but it's available for every other test that was run this year, that's the kind of thing that allows you to say something fishy is here. But until we start looking for the fish, there's no way to say that it's fishy. If you just stand on the bank and say, I think there's fish in that lake, when you have a pole right next to you that you can cast and you can maybe get a fish to bite, right? Yeah, I think there's fish in that lake. I got a feeling there's fish in that lake. You just want to stand on the shore and say there's fish in the lake. Fish for the fish. Let's see what's going on. And Reed can do it. 
and, and it's everything I say about it now. Like, you're going to have people who are wired to find fault with anything. When I say Eric Reed should pursue a grievance, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. The NFLPA files that grievance, not him. No shit. No shit. That's not the point. The point is Reed working with his union can fight this if they believe there is something going on that shouldn't be going on. And if you do think there's something going on, that shouldn't be going on. I think it's reckless to just claim it without evidence when you have a way to get to the evidence. You know, we got a high profile politician who likes to complain about a certain ongoing investigation being a witch hunt. He has no easy means at his disposal to prove it's a witch hunt. When you do have those means at your disposal and you don't take advantage of them, your complaints about being the target of a witch hunt ring hollow. That's my point. Hey, Eric, you got something there, potentially. Do something about it. Otherwise, quit complaining about it. Because it's unfair to the NFL, and I can't believe I'm saying that because you know I'm always ready to hold the NFL accountable. I'm always ready to assume the worst anytime there's discretion to be exercised in a way that could make the NFL look good or bad or otherwise. I, I think that it's unfair to the NFL to just suggest that this is happening without making the claim, initiating the process, and getting to the truth. And if there's any hint of irregularity as they try to reconstruct how that computer program was drawing names, and I assume that's what they use. I mean, I don't think it's Roger Goodell going into his office, closing the door, and drawing 10 names out of a hat and operating on the honor system, right? As I've said before, it's an independent company. Independent company that administers the random testing process. And that company is hired by the league and the union jointly. So if this is happening, the league has somehow infiltrated, the league has somehow gotten to someone at the testing company and persuaded them to corrupt the process to harass Eric Reed, all in the hopes of, I guess, catching him using a PED or just making it more miserable for him day in and day out. Why would they do that? If, if they are that motivated to get Eric Reed out of the NFL, first of all, the NFL, I assume, would have kept David Tepper from hiring Eric Reed, and he would still be unemployed like Colin Kaepernick. Secondly, if you're going to screw around with the PED process, let's think about this for a second. If you are going to run the risk of civil and criminal liability by getting someone from a drug testing company to quote-unquote randomly, not randomly, select the same guy repeatedly. If you're going to do that, if you're going to go that far, if you're going to run that risk, why don't you just do it once and have somebody spike his sample? I mean, if you can get access to somebody on the inside, why stop at the person who's responsible for picking the names or pressing the button that generates the names or changing the database to make the result different than what it was? Some sort of Ferris Bueller infiltration going on. Why not just go to the person who could sprinkle a little steroid powder into the urine sample from the time they pop the sample open to the time they put it in the GCMS? That's gas chromatograph mass spectrometer. I assume that's what they still use to figure these things out, but who knows? Technology changes, and I'm still trying to figure out how to use my DVD player that no one uses anymore. So I just, it, it, all of this, it, 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 it irritates me because... If there is something to it, let's get to it. Let's do something about it. Let's ferret it out. Let's not just recklessly complain based upon the result, which is 
while not probable, still theoretically possible. It's not an impossible result. If there's a way to find out that something fishy is happening, and I think there is, do it. Let's get to the bottom of it. All right, eventually we're going to be getting to the bottom of the changes that are going to be made. I just want to give you the benefit of of uh, some of the things I've heard. These aren't reports, right? These aren't two sources. These are just teams to keep an eye on as we get closer and closer to the end of the season. Teams where there may be a change. The Dolphins, I reported over the weekend, Stephen Ross is undecided. That is closer than the spitballing otherwise would do. Stephen Ross is undecided about what he's going to do with his football operation. I can't imagine Sunday's loss to the Vikings helped keep people around. We'll see how that plays out. With the Jets, what I've heard is Todd Bowles will be out. Again, it's not a report. My here, well, my, 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 and, and I don't want to be a weasel on this, right? I don't, I don't aspire to be a weasel in any context. I, I don't want to have it both ways. And I'm not going to come back and say as first reported as I was spitballing on the PFTPM podcast. What I'm hearing now from people I trust, Bowles, Todd Bowles is out and maybe Mike McCagnan is out. But, you know, the last time they got rid of the coach, they also got rid of the GM. And John Idzik didn't even get a chance to hire a coach. McCagnan got a chance to hire one. The rule of thumb for years has been a strong GM, a GM who runs the show, typically gets to hire two coaches before he's out the door. With the Bengals, no one knows what the hell is going to happen. And we've been surprised. We've had years in the past where we think Marvin Lewis is out. And the next thing you know, they announce a contract extension. And the one thing to keep in mind, Lewis has one more year under his contract. And Mike Brown, the owner of the team, does not like to pay people to not work. So I'd be surprised if Lewis is out unless he truly chooses to walk away. The AFC South, the Jacksonville Jaguars, look, there's a sense that Doug Marone could be out. No one knows what Shad Khan's going to do. The owner of the team, though, I think one of the worst things you could do is tease him by getting so close to a Super Bowl and then bottom out the way they have. And it really has been embarrassing. And there's a chance, a real chance, that there are going to be some serious changes in Jacksonville. The AFC West, I'm looking at the four teams here. I think everything is fine there other than Vance Joseph. How can I'm looking right at that horse head. How can I forget the Vance Joseph situation? And I believe this, that that report from Woody Page that came out Monday that last year John Elway was thinking about firing Vance Joseph and hiring Mike Shanahan. And I've got some some quibbles with the report itself. The idea that Elway didn't do it because Joe Ellis, who essentially runs the team, the business side at a minimum, told Elway he would have to interview a minority candidate. He can't just go hire Mike Shanahan, and that dissuaded him. Well, you, you do what the Raiders did. You, they knew they were hiring John Gruden, and they they checked the box with uh, pretextual minority interviews, and so they could have done that if they really wanted to. I think the fact that this is coming out now is kind of a trial balloon at what's to come, and I think after losing to the Browns at home on Saturday night, John Elway decided the time has come to move on from Vance Joseph. Don't know it. But I think it in the a and the a, in the NFC East. I know there's been some talk about Jay Gruden being in trouble in Washington. No one knows at this point. It would be easy to make excuses for the team's performance. So many injuries this year. People wonder what's going to happen with Bruce Allen. I saw an interesting item a couple of weeks ago from the Washington Post. I can't remember who wrote it, but basically, who would be upset if Bruce Allen gets fired? Like, where is this pro Bruce Allen contingent that demands on Bruce Allen continuing? as president of the Washington franchise. So there could be some changes there. In the NFC North, I think everything's fine. I know there are people out there that aren't happy with Matt Patricia as the first-year coach of the Lions, but Bob Quinn, the GM of the team, did not hire Patricia to be one and done. 
Patricia's brought in for the long haul for the major rebuild, and they took a couple steps back this year in the hopes of taking steps forward in 2019 or 2020. They they want to make it like the Patriots there, and it's not something that you fix overnight. But I think plenty of changes may be coming to the roster, and at some point, not after this year, but maybe after next year, you have to wonder about the future of Matthew Stafford. In the NFC South, I saw the report today from NFL Network that the coordinators are in trouble with the Falcons. That's not a surprise. I mean, if you're going to keep Dan Quinn and Thomas Dimitrov, you got to get rid of Steve Sarkeesian. Now, here's where the dilemma arises. Because if you go out and hire an offensive coordinator who's going to come in and fix everything and do a great job, you're going to potentially lose him like you lost Kyle Shanahan. That's why I think there's an argument to be made. As much as I like Dan Quinn and respect what he's done with the Falcons, there's an argument to be made for just ripping the Band-Aid altogether and making the offensive guy that you would hire to take advantage of the remaining years of Matt Ryan's career and the remaining years of Julio Jones' career and let that person be the head coach. So when he fixes it, he's not going to leave to be the head coach somewhere else. Ron Rivera has to be wondering what's going to happen to him in Carolina. David Tepper has no ties to Rivera. Whatever it would cost to buy out the last two years of Rivera's contract, cost of doing business. You pay over $2 billion for the team. What's the head coach's buyout for two years? It's nothing in comparison. So that's one to keep a close eye on. And the Buccaneers, I've, I've heard some rumblings that Dirk Cutter is out, will be out, maybe already knows he's going to be out, and that they may re- try to revamp that football operation by bringing in someone who would be the executive in charge and figure out what to do with Jason Light and figure out what to do with a head coach and go from there. So that could be a fascinating development in Tampa Bay. Arizona Cardinals, I I heard after the Kent Summers report came out yesterday about Steve Wilkes being, uh, what is it, his departure seems a foregone conclusion. It was words to that effect. Someone reached out to me and said, yeah, he's done. The question is, what do they do with Steve Keim, the GM of the team? And that's the one that, uh, that really is the wild card. And remember this, there's always a surprise. Now, We try very hard to flag the surprise. And I guess if you plant the flag on as many teams as possible, it won't be a surprise. But there's always one that we really didn't think about that kind of comes out of nowhere. We'll see if that happens this year. All right, I'm going to uh, play for you the half hour or so conversation that I had earlier today with Mark Leibovich. Before that, though, it's important to keep in mind, especially as the holiday season is upon us, that it is important to be conscious at all times of the hazards of driving while under the influence of any substances. And by the way, this all entire episode of PFTPM brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. They are constantly working hard to change habits and save lives, especially during the holidays. We all know the risks of driving drunk. You could get in a crash. You could get yourself hurt. You could get yourself killed. You could get other people hurt or killed. Consider some of these statistics. Almost 29 people in the United States die every day in alcohol-impaired vehicular crashes. That's one person every 50 minutes. And even though drunk driving fatalities have fallen by a third in the last three decades, drunk driving crashes still claim more than 10,000 lives every single year. And it's not just driving drunk, it's driving high. Some people think, and I remember when there was a certain high-profile running back who didn't play at all this year, who was arrested for driving while under the influence of marijuana. He didn't even know that it was illegal to do it. So anything that would impair your judgment, anything that would impair your motor skills, anything that would impair your ability to operate that 4,000-pound machine, don't use it before you get behind the wheel, period. 
in addition to the potential criminal penalties, in addition to the potential embarrassment of a mugshot and all your friends and family members are going to know what you did and all the money you're going to have to spend on a lawyer. That's the best outcome of all the bad outcomes that could happen. If you get yourself in that situation, getting arrested for DUI is the best outcome. Injuring or killing someone or yourself is the worst outcome. Avoid it all by staying away from anything that could affect your judgment, your reflexes, your ability to see and react, anything that would go into driving that vehicle. Stay away from it if you're going to get behind the wheel this holiday season. All right, with that, Mark Leibovich, author of Big Game, The NFL in Dangerous Times, and a good friend of the PFTPM podcast. Here's the conversation that I recorded with him earlier today. All right, joining us now, one of our favorite guests, one of the only guests we've had this season, just because the season has flown by, but he's been on three times now. I think if, I don't know, Mark, I don't know how, how much of a, of a feather in the cap this is, but Mark Leibovich, author of Big Game, The NFL in Dangerous Times, the only three-time guest of the PFTPM podcast this season. We welcome Mark back because I told him, it's Christmas time, baby. Let's sell some books. I Mark, am totally you? ready, man. Good, good. Uh, th- I'm great. Good to be here. Good to be a three-time guest. I guess I've been, have I been flexed into Christmas week or pre-Christmas week? You were flexed into pre-Christmas week. We were going to do this last week, but I had something come yeah. up, but I thought, you know what? Hey, this is, this is the time when people are making the last minute. I got to yeah. get that gift for someone. Not that I'm naturally going to reach the, yeah. the, the wives, uh, although there are plenty of females who love football now, I'm trying to get the guys who are locked into football who need to get something for dad, nephew, mm-hmm. brother, get them big game. The NFL in Dangerous Times It's a book that they will enjoy and it will be enlightening and they will read it quickly and they will they will uh, learn much from it. So, Mark, I, I enjoyed reading it. I probably need to read it again just to refresh my memory about some of the great stuff that was in there. But uh, you've been you've been promoting it, it seems like, all season long. How's that gone for you? Yeah, it's been great. I mean, it's been it's been a really fun bunch of bites of the apple here because, I mean, you know, with a book, if you're lucky, you get maybe a week of sort of media and then, and then something else happens and everyone moves on. But um, I, I think it's one of those things where, you know, football season happens. I'm focused on events and occasionally you have a few minutes to sort of read the thing on your on your night post or I you know whatever it is your um, what do they call these things oh Kindle jeez um, long season your Kindle and uh, yeah no so it has to it has a nice slow drip going and now we have year end stuff and it's been an interesting season of course my whole premise about the gloom and doom of the league has been completely um, you know completely blown up by this incredibly successful le- uh, year at the league but uh, it's all good I can adapt but see they read your book. And they learned, and they've course corrected. So you can take credit. Exactly right. Yes, I'm a how-to guide. On how- <laughs> well, basically what I've done was I've made sure that Donald Trump was distracted so he couldn't, like, talk about the national anthem and protest and all that stuff. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, I guess there's been a rough few weeks. I mean, not ratings-wise, but there's all this, you know, a lot of off, off-field stuff again and, you know, the Reuben Foster thing and, and the, uh, you know, Kareem Hunt thing. I mean, so, look, there's always something. But, yeah, it's an interesting year. And, um, yeah, we'll see. Like, it's almost January. You mentioned Donald Trump, and I've got a theory as to why he ended up leaving the NFL alone. I think some sort of a backroom deal was struck to get him off of the NFL's case. That's the only way I can explain it. When you look at the various owners who contributed seven figures to the inauguration committee, when you look at the friendship he's had long time with owners like Woody Johnson, who he made an ambassador, 
Robert Kraft. I'm, I mean, I, I think something had to have happened. It's too easy and it's too simple for him to fire off a tweet talking about the ongoing disrespect of football players for the national anthem. He would have done it at some point in the run-up to the midterms just to rally mm-hmm. just some small segment of the base. So I, I'm convinced they struck a deal with him. I, you know, I think you could be right. And what's interesting, too, is the one time Roger Goodell really said anything nice about, you know, anything political. He said after the NAFTA deal was renegotiated, um, Roger Goodell made a point of praising the Trump administration for getting some tax thing into the Canadian part of, of like, the broadcast, some broadcast part of the NAFTA deal that benefits the NFL broadcast rights in Canada. I don't, I don't pretend to understand this. But... He actually made a point of doing this shout out to to Trump and Trump then, of course, heard this and talked about how how he was praised and how great NAFTA is. And so basically, it's not that hard. You just sort of have to, to give a shout out to the president every once in a while. And he feels he feels needed. Now, of course, you talk to people at the league and it's like, OK, Goodell, I like, can't be bothered to to you know defend the league when the president calls a bunch of your players as son, sons of bitches. Um, but then when the president does something nice and it affects your bottom line, you say something then. So you can be as cynical as you want. But that might have something to do with it. But, yeah, you're right. I think a lot of it, the owners talk to him. And I also think that it, it wouldn't shock me, by the way, that if you look at all the money that Fox paid for the Thursday night games last, I guess, last spring, which was they clearly overpaid for it, wouldn't shock me if in the discussions between Rupert Murdoch and Robert Kraft and whoever, there, there was not some, hey, uh, Rupert, can you, do you think you can mention to the president that it'd be really nice if he left us alone here because we're paying a lot of money here? I don't know. Look, I don't pretend to know any of this, but I do think there are a lot of factors at work and a lot of political connections. Should it be more fascinating or terrifying that it's that easy to just say nice things to or about the president and get him on your your good side? <laughs> I don't think it's fascinating at all. I think it, it's reality, right? I mean, this is, I mean, there's all this. What's interesting to me as a political reporter is that people are always saying, oh, you must be in heaven. It's just like watching this guy operate. I, I don't think it's interesting at all. I don't think it's that hard to figure out. I think if you are Roger Goodell and someone is, you know, advising you to say, hey, maybe you say a nice thing about the president, uh, you do it and it works. Now, there, there, there are tens and hundreds of billions of dollars being spent on consulting fees and lobbying fees of people telling corporations and trade groups and what have you here in D.C. that, uh, oh, yeah, if you want to avoid this tweet, maybe, um, you know, m- maybe thank President Trump publicly for something. And he notices that. But, yeah, is, is it terrifying? Um, I don't know. It's reality. But, but it's so... I don't know. It's just so basic and there's an honesty in it. And, uh, you know, a president who is constantly tracked by the Washington Post for dishonesty, there is a very basic visceral. This is this is it. These are the rules. You kiss my ass and you'll be fine. And if you say bad things about me, I won't like you. And it's that simple. And there's no pretense. There's no nuance. It is as linear. It is as bright line as it can be. It is very primal. I mean, it is, it is rules of the jungle. I mean, it's interesting because I mean, I'm telegraphing a story I'm, I'm working on. But I went out to see um, Harry Reid, the former Senate Majority Leader, in Vegas last week, and he he's battling pancreatic cancer, which is a very serious cancer, and I don't think he has very much longer to live. But Reid is, I could sort of tell, was chomping at the bit, because Reid is a street fighter. Reid grew up just dirt poor. He used to get into fights all the time. And I think part of him is sort of frustrated by the comedy and the cordialness and the kind of fakeness in politics that has 
despite Trump kind of prevailed in, you know, in D.C. in a way that I think continues to turn off a lot of the electorate. And look, I mean, I, the I mean, Trump is a very cynical guy. Harry Reid is a very cynical guy. And you're right. There's something very basic and oddly honest about the whole thing. And, and really, it all gets down to a sort of primal ego thing. And that, that's the game that Trump plays. The ratings are up, as you mentioned, but, you know, they're still down significantly. And, and I knew this was going to happen. The year that it dipped, 2016, because of the election and people were watching debates instead of watching live football and people were following politics instead of following the game. Yeah. I, I said, hey, it's going to rebound at some point. And they're going to brag about it because it's going to rebound in comparison to this low watermark that we're seeing. And then there was a lower watermark last year. And now it's coming back. But they still have so far to go to get back to 2015. I feel like this constant thumping of the chest overlooks the fact that they're just beginning to dig out of the hole. They've still got a way to go to get back to where they were. That, that is true. And I also think that they sort of learned a Trumpian lesson of, of excessive pounding of your chest, whereas, you know, if you're if you're rating well, if your if your numbers are better than they were, just pound home how much of a win it is. But you're right. No, the numbers are I don't think they're coming back. I mean, if you look at sort of the bigger interstitial things like cord cutting and, um, you know, like we're, we're in another political season pretty soon. I mean, it'll be in a presidential you know, election cycle soon enough. And, and I do think you have an ongoing problem of, you know, just a pretty weak leadership um, void and ownership void in the league. I mean, I think the fact that, and, you know, maybe this is overlooked and maybe this is washed out by the good numbers, but the fact that Roger Goodell has continued with some of this domestic violence stuff this year with Kareem Hunt, Reuben Foster, to sort of self-inflict a lot of, you know, maybe needless headaches on the league is an ongoing problem and, and also his silence is. You know, on, on the issues that came up, and, and it just shows you how quickly things can change. I think they've done a good job of scaring players away from the generalized ledger of arrest that used to predominate the discussion. Yep. And, and, and most players are staying out of trouble, and it's only a very ha small handful who are getting in trouble. But when they do, especially if it's domestic violence or any type of violence against a female, that's when it becomes a huge story. And we've seen it this year with Reuben Foster twice, and then in close proximity kareem hunt and right. yeah I, mark i for the life of me i i know what they're trying to do yeah. but they just won't admit that they don't know how to properly do it that they're not equipped they're not skilled they don't have the right resolve and i don't know what their agenda is when they investigate one of these guys is it keep it as quiet as possible is it throw the book at him is it yeah. get to the truth i think ultimately they they are driven by pr considerations in every one of these investigations I mean, it does make you sort of wonder, what does the league know that we don't know and that TMZ has never bothered to find out or hasn't paid for, doesn't know exists or what have you? Because you're right. I mean, I think the things we do hear about, the, the incidents that are more egregious are, are the ones that um, they're just having to react to, right? I mean, TMZ, you know, in both the Ray Rice case and in the Kareem Hunt case, I mean, just, uh, just completely forces their hand. But you're right. I mean, I think that if given the choice between perfectly, you know, investigating 
litigating, adjudicating a domestic violence incident, being as transparent as they can be, and maybe getting a few pats on the back, or completely sweeping it under the rug so that no one ever knows it exists, it's, they're certainly going to take the, the former option, even if it's not doing the right thing. So you're right. I, I still think they have no, they've made absolutely no progress today compared to where they were right after Ray Rice. I played this out verbally as it related to Kareem Hunt, if the NFL had gotten the video. However, yeah. they had come across it. They privately get their hands on the video. Okay, what do you do with the video then? You suspend Kareem Hunt 10 games. What do you do? Do you play the video on Total Access on NFL Network? Do you release the video to the media? Do, do, or do you just try to quietly... And that's the thing. If you suspend him 10 games, people are going to say, what the hell? He was never arrested. He was never charged. Right. How can you suspend this guy 10 games? So I, I think there's a certain element of conscious indifference you know, we yeah. checked the box. Hey, we asked for it, and they told us, no, sorry, nothing we can do. We, we've tried right. to contact the alleged victim. We called her. She didn't call us back. There's nothing we can do. And they prefer to just stay in that posture until they're forced to act. That's a really good point. You're right. I mean, I don't, I don't think the league would voluntarily release a video like this. I mean, not in a million years, right? But then, of course, they would have to acknowledge that the video exists, that they're taking you know, a very, very hard line against the player. They work closely with the club, the Chiefs in this case. But, but of course, then when they do that, you're, you're inviting TMZ to go to the Cleveland police and you know, flash a whole bunch of dollar bills or you know, $100 bills or whatever. And you know, it's going to be on the Internet pretty soon. So you're right. I mean, I don't have an elegant solution, but I do think that, look, I, I think it's probably it's not all or nothing. I mean, just investigate things, say it's a harsh penalty and do something. And look, if the video is going to surface, it will. But at least you, you know that the league was ahead of it. You know, I've delayed bringing up this topic for as long as possible, but I'm at the point where I can't, I can't avoid it. Your Patriots are crumbling. Oh, the Empire. Oh, I was just Rome, Rome is burning, and I don't know who Nero is in this equation, but uh, it's, it's, uh, it's been a great run, Mark. But you know, it's time, it's time to close the books on the Patriots. I think. Yeah, I mean, even when they were nine and three, this this year still always had the sort of maybe at best losing the AFC Championship vibe to it. But now it has a uh, you know, maybe get stunned at home on wild card weekend vibe to it. I mean, it, it doesn't look good. I mean, I think, I, I do think that they're paying the price for blowing a few drafts in a row. I think they're paying the price for, for letting people like you know, Logan Ryan go and you know, maybe not Malcolm Butler, but there's a lot of, um, yeah, there are a lot of people that they've lost and you just can't keep filling it in. And, and Brady has, uh, Brady is 41 years old and, Gronk is a shell of his former self. So look, it's depressing to watch, but I still think that they might win a playoff game and at least have an interesting divisional game. I don't think they'll go much farther than that, though, but I hope I'm wrong. 33-14 to 14 was the score of the last wildcard game they hosted mm-hmm. against the Ravens to cap the 2009 season. It could be on track for that again, the way that yeah. the brackets are shaping up now. It could be Baltimore at New England. And if they you could the win that game... From, you remember the first play from scrimmage in that game? All I know is before I knew it, it was like 21 nothing. Well, That's all I remember. Ray Rice ran for like a 65-yard, untouched, a 65-yard touchdown on the first play from scrimmage. Yeah, that, um, that was one of those where it was over so quickly and they so were quickly. never back in it. There was never a sense they were going to get anything together. It was just how quickly can we run this clock and get out of here. That's how bad of a day it was. For the Patriots. And, and they, you know, they go on the road. I mean, they're the one team, even though they're 3-5 and five on the road this year, Mark. I think about the mindset of the playoffs. And everything changes. Mm-hmm. The records get thrown out the window. And the question becomes, 
What can you do in that 60 minutes of football where your season is riding on the outcome? And when the Patriots have played so many postseason games, I'm giving myself an idea of a story to write at PFT. How yeah. many? Think about how many postseason games they've played since 2010. And the coaching staff, the quarterback, you, you, you have that, that, that reservoir of experience to draw on where you're right. going against a team. Let's say they face the Chiefs at some point in the postseason. Right. You know, all the Chiefs know about playoffs is losing, losing in, in the playoffs. Sure. Yep, and you got absolutely. a quarterback that's never played in a playoff game. And I think yep. that is a huge advantage for the Patriots wherever they are on that, on that seating list. Yeah, I, I totally, you know, look, there, like you're right. I mean, as, you, as we were talking here, I mean, there is not an away game that scares the crap out of, you know, you that, that you might. I mean, you know, even like San Diego, and I refuse to not call them San Diego, but look, they're going to this little soccer stadium. And, you know, San Diego's as young as, I guess I should call them L.A. L.A. is as young as, except for Phillip Rivers, they're as young as anybody else. And I don't know, I don't think that they particularly scare anyone. So you're right. I mean, this is not... I don't think I don't think there is a team in the AFC that cannot be beaten by any circumstances. And sure, I mean they they certainly have been there before, and they can play on the road, although they haven't proven it this year. I was convinced, based on things I was hearing prior to the Super Bowl in Minneapolis, that Rob Gronkowski was going to retire mm. after the game. He almost I think did. He, he fully expected to win. I remember when he was asked in the press conference about the rumors that he was going to retire, and he said, I don't know how you heard about that, which is the ultimate yeah. giveaway that there's a that to hear about. But if Absolutely. they had won, I think he was done. For whatever reason, he came back for one more year. And, you know, Bill Belichick has deviated from that formula of get rid of a guy one year too early instead of one year too late because I'd like to think Belichick knows enough to see that this was coming, but it's been stunning, and I'd be shocked if Gronk is back in 2019. Yeah, me too. I mean, I also, I mean, he gets expensive. I mean, it's about $10 million. I mean, he's not worth $10 million at this point. And, you know, apparently, I mean, I guess this was an Adam Schefter report. I think uh, Belichick tried to trade him to Detroit and he, you know, he threatened to retire. He didn't want to play with anyone other than Brady. So that sort of scuttled the deal. And then he said he didn't want to play for any other team. So I guess a trade is out. But no, you're right. I mean, he just doesn't look good. And it's certainly, I mean, you can tell he, he just takes his blows really, really hard these days. He's falling hard. He's not running very fast. Um, I wouldn't say it's sad to watch at this point because he's still, I think, an above average tight end, but um, it's not pretty. I remember when they hosted the Steelers to start the 2015 season after winning Super Bowl 49. There was so much discussion that week about what the Steelers were going to do, how many players would they put on him, how are they going to defend him, what are they going to do, and then there was the one play where they had no one on him at all. That that doesn't work. I don't yeah. I don't think that would still work now. But now he's just a guy. He's out there. They yeah. put one guy on him. He has two catches for 21 yards, I think it was, and yeah. and it's he looks the same. But he doesn't play the same, and he doesn't move the same, and it's it's kind of it's not it's not like to the point where you feel bad for him, but it's no. getting close to that. And I think if he plays one more year, we may be at that point. I, I think you're right. Look, he's 29 years old. He's made tons of money. He's got all kinds of opportunities in entertainment and in media. There, I mean, there's no doubt that. I mean, he's not going to be a um, he's not going to want for options. But look, I mean, he's a classic case of a. Um, of a guy, whoop, sorry, Mike, I got someone on the call waiting here. He's a classic case of a guy who clearly there's some long-term damage being done, and you just don't walk away from a career like this. What do you think of Tom Brady as he tries to outrace Father Time? <laughs> I, I, don't think, I don't think the physical stuff is as big of a problem as some people are saying. I mean, I do think, though, that he seems, I wouldn't say checked out, but he just does not seem to have the confidence that he can sort of click it 
um, that he sometimes can in, in December. I mean, if you do look at the paper, I mean, I think Josh Gordon is a huge weapon for him. It's bigger than anything, better than anything they had last year. I think Edelman's probably a couple steps slower than he was last year. I think they miss Amendola. But, but look, their weapons are, are there. I mean, their running game is decent. And there's just something missing, though. I mean, I don't know if it's a timing thing or, or just an attitude thing. But, um, but he, you know, physically he's making throws. It's just you sort of wonder, um, you know, you just where, where his head's at a little bit. And I've never said that before. You mentioned Josh Gordon. He wasn't on the field for that last yeah. play, fourth and 15, from the Steelers' 21. They had Cordero Patterson instead. Josh McDaniels said earlier today that that there's no ulterior motive, although you're never going to admit the ulterior motive. That kind of right. is the whole purpose of the ulterior motive. But they were just giving the guy a rest. I mean, I, I, you, know, you give mm. a guy a rest on the last play of the game. But that throw yeah. that Brady made where he claimed that he was throwing it away, we had oh. a shot of it on NBCSN where it's obvious he threw that ball with the hope that Rob Gronkowski would catch it, and he didn't yeah. realize Julian Edelman was back there with Joe Hayden on him when Hayden jumped yeah. up to get it. That was not a throwaway. That was just a bad ball that he that he really did put up for grabs. And those are the kinds of things, those rush decisions. And I was always told yeah. with Brady, you got to watch his legs, not his arm, because exactly. when he can't get away from contact, that's when he's going to start taking too many hits and he's mm-hmm. going to start throwing the ball too quickly because he's going to want to avoid those hits. And that's when the game's going to start to crumble for him. That's right. And if you watch his legs in the pocket, too, I mean, this was I mean, he wasn't sacked. I mean, he was sacked, what, a couple times this Sunday? I mean, not I mean, couldn't have been more than two. But you could tell he looked uncomfortable throughout that game. I mean, he was um, – he just didn't look like someone in command of an offense or at least in command of an offense that he was comfortable with. We've seen this movie so many times, though. We write them off. They use that as motivation to find that that magical whatever it is, and they surprise us, and we all end up collectively saying, what the hell were we thinking – when we wrote them off. And I feel like another run like that is in the cards because there isn't that team. There isn't a Saints quality team right. in the in the AFC. The Saints, I think, I mean, they, they, they've got the final two regular season games at home. They're going to have home field yeah. advantage. They can put their luggage in the suitcase or the suitcase in the closet, rather, until it's time to pack up and go to Atlanta. But in the I AFC, think I think it's really, really wide open. Exactly. I do. Th- yeah, I would totally agree with you. I don't think the same. I don't think anyone can win in New Orleans. Not even close. Um, I mean, now look, if they had to go on the road to say L.A., I would probably feel differently. But um, you're right. No, there's absolutely no one in the AFC. And, and you're also you're, you're realizing that as the season does go on, I don't know if it's weather. I don't know if it's just film or, or what. But but these high powered offenses, whether it's the Rams, I mean, I guess the Saints, if you look at the last couple of weeks, um, maybe less so the Chiefs. But, you know, they certainly have had some hiccups um you know you can get caught up to i mean it's like there have not been these juggernaut really high scoring games over the last few weeks that you've seen so i don't know if that bodes well or poorly for them in the playoffs but you're right i mean look it wouldn't shock me to see me see the pats back in the super bowl at all mark before i let you go i want to pivot to a couple of non-football topics i don't want to cut too Mm -hmm. much into your johnny walker blue time i'm very sensitive (laughs) to that but but i had no idea of the difference financially. I texted you about that a few weeks ago. I was at the liquor store and I saw the Johnny Walker black and next to it, 
was the Johnny Walker Blue, and now I know why Jerry Jones drinks Johnny Walker Blue. It has nothing to do with the Blue Star. It has everything to do with that price tag. My God, that stuff's expensive. You know, it's funny. I, I looked into Jerry's, um, that like special closet he has with, with all of the blue in it, and I think, you know, the butler or whoever was serving us said, you know, these cost, these go about $270 a bottle or whatever it was. And I said, kind of under my breath, well, you know, Mr. Jones, you can afford it. And then he sort of corrected me. He said, yeah, I can afford it financially, but I cannot afford the stuff it makes me do after I drink it. <laughs> Which I thought was a very, you know, poignant and on, you know, very, very sensitive thing to say. And you just, I, 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 you could switch from blue to black after two or three of those 24-ounce tumblers, right? You're really not going to know the difference at that point. Although maybe Jerry's palate and tolerance have evolved to the point where he still knows the difference after three or four of those. I, you know, I... I <laughs> I guess he does. Look, I, I was in no position to, to be discriminating in either way, shape, or form. For all I know, they were pouring, like, you know, Diet Coke in there after a while, but it, it sure tasted smooth. All right, so uh, non-football stuff. Is the president going to get impeached? <laughs> oh, boy. See, I, I'm sitting here at the New York Times, and if I actually just sort of spitball and give you an answer here, which, you know, I'm inclined to do because we're just a couple of guys talking, I could get in trouble. So what do I do? Oh, what the heck. Um, look, I don't know. How's that? Is that a good answer? I, I think it's an accurate answer. I just, I don't know if anyone does know at this point. And that's what makes it so damn vexing, but also mm-hmm. compelling. Nobody knows what's going to happen. We're in the middle of this thing as the dribs and drabs are coming out. And there's never been that big picture look at all this stuff to get anyone to say, holy crap, look at all this yeah. stuff. Well, I mean, the, the picture is very, very big. I mean, that's the thing. And in some weird way, that kind of works in the president's favor, because most people don't have the time or the bandwidth to sort of look at the entirety of the picture. They have their snap judgments and so forth. I will say, though, that over the last, I would say, oh, maybe six weeks since the midterms, there has been a, a bit of a shift in vibe um, just in what could happen. And you just have a sense that there is a lot of stuff on the public record and it just keeps coming. And, um, you know, you do have a sense of siege in the White House. And, and it's not like they have any big legislative victories coming down the pike that they're going to be able to bank on. I mean, we'll see, I guess, prison reform is one thing. But at the same time, there's just a lot. There's a lot to not look forward to if you're this White House right now. Assuming that there isn't an impeachment effort and that the thought is just let it play out and and try to get him elected out of office in 2020, do you see a Republican contender that would say enough, we're going to challenge this guy in the primary? Yeah, I think there will be. I mean, I think, um, you know, whether he or she can be effective is, is another question entirely. I mean, I think one way, one thing, when you talk to the non-Trump loving Republicans, and there are quite a few of them, more than people say, uh, the important thing is to make sure there's only one. Because if you have, say, a Jeff Flake over here and a John Kasich over here, and you just sort of split the difference, you have, you know, Trump gets 70 percent of the vote and Kasich gets 20 and Flake gets 10, whatever. I mean, th- th- you need sort of a single voice who can make a more classical conservative, classical Republican argument. And I mean, the question is, who, who is that person? And I, but I do think that it would be surprising if there wasn't some kind of competition for him. You know, the thing about it, and, and I've been following politics, and as I look back on the last 40 years, I realize I haven't followed it as casually as I thought. I really follow it closely and just make it part of my life. But yeah. there's a charisma that Trump has that none of those guys you mentioned possess. Kasich doesn't have it. Flake no. doesn't have it. They need somebody 
who is as charismatic or more charismatic than Trump. And it's weird to use charisma as it relates yeah. to Donald Trump, because when you break it down, there are very little things about him that are endearing. But right. that total package appeals to so many people and it sells on TV and he knows how to do it. And until he finds someone as an opponent, Democrat or Republican, who can play that same game, maybe in a different way, but but have that same that that same attraction and that same connection without regard to nuance and policy and the things that make yeah. people shut down. He, he's still going to be a viable candidate. Oh, he'll, there's no question he'll be a viable candidate. I, I mean, I do think that there is something about him that people just want to watch, whether you love him or hate him. I mean, I do think that, I mean, people talk a lot about the the durability of his base, how people love him through thick and thin, which, which they do if you look at the vast majority of Republicans. I do think what people underestimate is that that base is shrinking. I think the population of Republicans is shrinking. Um, I think we saw that with the midterms. We saw that with... You know, Democrats basically winning, um, you know, eight, nine percent of the congressional popular vote. I mean, that, that's a serious margin. So, I mean, I think that a lot that people sort of fixate on the proportion of Republicans that Trump has. What they don't fixate on or don't pay attention to enough is that a lot of Republicans that were Republicans two years ago are now independents. I don't think many of them are Democrats, but a lot of them have just said, all right, well, I'm looking for something else. And I'm certainly not voting with this guy. So, look, we'll see. I, I, but I certainly don't <laughs> pretend for a second that he's not uh, compelling, you know, and he's not going to be great box office from from our perspective for the next couple of years. Who do you think the most viable Democrat will end up being? Um, I, you know, the easy answer is Biden, just because he's sort of a generic Democrat at this point. I mean, I think Democrats have, who have had success over the last couple of years have been the sort of do no harm Democrats. Um, you know, Doug Jones in Alabama, uh, Ralph Northam in Virginia. I mean, you know, people who are known entities or at least innocuous entities. And I think that obviously someone like Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or even like Beto O'Rourke could 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 really rub some people the wrong way just because they're either very very far left or in O'Rourke's O'Rourke's case is very very young and and you know there's a level of um, there's a level of, of hotspot to to a guy who who's never really won anything statewide or never won anything statewide, deciding he wants to run for president. But look, who knows? I mean, Trump has sort of thrown out all the rules um, based on how he got elected to begin with. I like the Biden and Beto ticket. I've heard some talk and, you know, not, not that I have sources. I turn on my TV from you my TV. Have- I've heard talk of Biden and Beto. And that is fascinating because you get a couple of charismatic guys who yeah. could take on Trump and it's Trump and Pence or Trump and whoever. I've also seen that maybe Pence gets thrown to the wayside, but <laughs> I could see a one-two punch of Biden and Beto that would be very, very viable. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I think what you have to remember, though, is that the Democratic Party, I mean, the energy is extremely, you know, it's it's very, very, very progressive these days. I mean, I think if you look at, you know, who's getting the really big crowds and who's raising a lot of money and who's drawing a lot of the excitement, it's... It's the Warrens and the Sanders and Beto, but I think Beto in some ways was a sort of a national cause celeb, and he ran it as a progressive in Texas, which I think you know raised him a lot of money in places like New York and Boston and Berkeley, but but probably you know didn't help him in red state Texas ultimately. But so, look, we'll see. It'll be fascinating. It's a good time to be doing this for a living. Although I miss football, I got to say, Mike. Well, if anyone out there misses football, first of all, football continues, but you can carry around football everywhere you go if you purchase 
this a big game. And I, I was getting, I was going to do a big sell of both of your books, and I was telling myself I'm going to scr- I'm going to mash the titles together. So instead mm-hmm. of saying big game in this town, I started to say this game like a complete and total idiot. Big no, game, the NFL in dangerous times, and package it with this town because really, for the people in your life that you love enough to buy a Christmas gift for, one book isn't enough. Get two no. Mark Leibovich books, big game, and this town. Then that person can. You know, get some good football insight, get some good political insight, and uh, and you feel like you have properly shown them how much you care about them by buying them two gifts instead of one. Mark, I really do appreciate your time. I know it's a busy week for you, and I enjoy talking to you very much about football and non-football things. I wish you uh, the best at the end of the year, and uh, hopefully we all have a great 2019. Let's hope so, Mike. Always a pleasure to be on, and thank you for everything. And, uh, yeah, we'll see you on the other side. All right, thanks again to Mark Leibovich. Really a, a great conversation. I enjoy talking football, enjoy talking politics, and we try to keep the politics nonpartisan. These are the issues that are coming up all the time at water coolers throughout the country, if there are water coolers uh, in any businesses, large or small. Speaking of small businesses, any small business owners out there who may need help managing cash flow, hiring employees, purchasing inventory, or upgrading office space, the one place to go is on deck. That's how you get access to capital at a time when it can be difficult to get loans from traditional banks that may be looking at larger businesses as the targets for potential lending. On Deck is 100% committed to small business owners with fast, easy, and tailored financing. You can get that funding that you need in as fast as 24 hours with term loans up to $500,000 and lines of credit up to $100,000, none of which will require business collateral. The application process is simple, does not impact your personal Credit on deck has loaned over $10 billion to more than 80,000 small businesses, and it carries a 9.8 out of 10 rating on Trustpilot and an A plus, A plus with the Better Business Bureau. So if you're a small business owner and you need access to capital, go to ondeck.com slash PEFT now. As a listener to this podcast, you get a free consultation with one of the on deck U.S. based loan specialists. You apply online or by phone, get approved in minutes. Go to ondeck.com slash PFT. That's on deck, O N D E C K.com slash PFT for your free consultation now. Right. We've been going for probably an hour so far on today's PFT PM podcast. As I remember how long I spoke to Mark Leibovich, how long I kind of babbled on and on about some of the topics we got to before we played the Leibovich interview. Here's answers to some of your questions. I have a feeling, though that I'm going to be asking you to re-ask these questions maybe tomorrow, maybe Thursday, because uh, I, I just don't have a whole lot of time here, and i got some other things that I need to get to. All right, PFTPM Posse has a question, says it's tinfoil hat time. The NFL won't change the worst rule in football until it screws up a conference title game or Super Bowl because they want and like all the attention they'll get over it, which will start negative and turn positive because they were reasonable and moved quickly to fix it as soon as it broke. I kind of like that theory. You know, I usually don't like theories that weren't my idea. I kind of like that theory. Then they have cover. It's almost like, and I don't want to compare, and I'm not going to. I'm not going to make any comparisons to how the NFL handles off-field issues, but PR issues generally, right? You, You act surprised when something happens, and you apologize for it, and you vow to fix it. The difference here, though, they could fix it now. Now, when the world loses its mind collectively because a Super Bowl has been marred by that horrible rule that if you lose possession of the football in the field of play and it goes out of bounds in the end zone, you you sacrifice possession to the other team who gets it at the, the 20 instead of the spot of the fumble. You get it at the 20. It's a horrible rule. It's an unfair rule. 
those of us who have been paying attention to that rule and will know that the NFL has been neglectful in changing the rule before the worst case scenario happens will be a very small fraction of those who are saying just change the rule. Doesn't matter how we got here. At this point, you got to change the rule. That that weird outcome that happened, we can't have it happen again. We've seen that before with other rules, and I think that's the way that this rule would get changed if and when it ever gets changed. PFTPM policy does the Raiders' inability to pay Khalil Mack and other stars close to market value contracts due to cash flow slash liquidity problems show that the rule requiring teams to fully fund contracts into an escrow account at signing still relevant. Assume I got the actual rule right. You're, 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 you're yeah, PFTPM posse, you're, you're, you're there. The idea is that the rule that was passed requiring full funding, and it's not full funding, it's like 80% of future guarantees, that that money has to be set aside at the time the contract is signed. That was put in place to protect players against owners who may be insolvent. Now, it's become a weapon that the teams use to resist fully funding contracts because no one wants to set that money aside. No one wants to do it. So what was initially a protection is now a detriment to players. But I don't know. I, I think what you're saying is with the Raiders, maybe there is reason to be concerned about the ability to make payroll. I'd like to think that's all going to change when they get to Las Vegas. Because here's the thing. If they traded Khalil Mack and Amari Cooper because they don't want to pay them market value or close to it, well, the draft picks you got in return... If those guys become great players, you're going to be in the same situation. So what are you going to do? Trade away the the great players you draft in the hopes of getting more draft picks, in the hopes of getting great players that you eventually will trade because you can't or won't pay them? At some point, that cycle has to end. It just has to end. All right, I got to scroll. I, I got, there's a lot of PFTP and Posse questions here. Some of them are passed along via other members of the club and um, some of them I've already addressed. Let's look at this one. This comes from Step Ron via PFTPM Posse. What are the short-term and long-term effects of the Amari Cooper trade for Dallas? My take, Dallas now has the 1,000-yard number one receiver they've needed for years, and it may have saved Jason Garrett's job for at least the 2019 season. Yeah, I think Garrett's going to be back if they make it to the playoffs. It looked like he had one foot out the door when they were what, four and five? Was it four and five or three and five? I can't remember, but they were in trouble. And it looked like they were going to lose to the Eagles on Sunday Night Football in Philly, and maybe Jason Garrett would be gone then. But the Amari Cooper trade has paid off. The problem is they're going to have to pay him. He's due to make $13.9 million, I believe, next year. That becomes the starting point for discussions on a long-term deal. They want to pay him. They want to pay Dak. they got to do something with Demarcus Lawrence. Ezekiel Elliott at some point is going to raise his hand and say, what the hell is going on here? When are you going to take care of me? It's going to get very expensive very quickly to hold this team together. And the difference between using that first-round pick on a receiver who comes in and has a big impact versus trading it for Amari Cooper and hoping he has a big impact if it's the guy you drafted, you get a few years to enjoy that big impact before you have to pay. For the Cowboys, it's half a season, and then you better pay because it's not going to get any cheaper as he gets closer to the point where you have to play the franchise tag game with Amari Cooper. And that's what they ultimately did with Des Bryant. They gave Des Bryant that big contract at a time when he was franchise tagged, and by the time they got to the fourth year of it, they were ready to tear it up and move on. Let's see what we got here. Spurs 0678 at home for Christmas break and binge watching NFL films. What's the best thing NFL films has put out? Also, should someone like Chris Berman get into the Pro Football Hall of Fame for growing the league and or as a contributor? You know, I don't think now, now here's the thing there's the media 
wing to the Hall of Fame where they put a writer in every year. They put someone from TV in every year. I don't think Berman's even ever gotten that, which is kind of weird. I don't think Howard Cosell ever got that, which is kind of weird. But there's a, there's a, there's a click element to it. There's a club element to it that you got to be in that circle or you never have a chance to get in. I don't know that a guy like Chris Berman would ever get anything more than the name on the plaque. I don't think Berman's ever going to get himself a, uh, a a bronze bust. And and here's the reality. You, you got to eventually put yourself in a position, and it is very political, where you get the support of enough people who are very independent-minded, and they have strong wills, and they're going to have opinions about who deserves a bronze bust, bronze bust and who doesn't. And I think it's going to be very hard for someone who was only in the media, who never crossed over into the game itself, other than the Sables. Ed Sables in, Steve Sable, I think, should get in at some point because of what they did with NFL Films. But, uh, yeah, I I think that's going to be hard to do for Berman. Now, as to NFL Films, I I don't watch it like I did when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I, I think it had a great value then. And it's kind of a shame that it's subsided. I think right now when they do those, uh, the football life, I think, is excellent. The the uh, the annual look at the Super Bowl champion is very good. But boy, when I was a kid, I mean, you think about it. You got to see maybe two games a week if you were lucky, maybe three. You didn't see the highlights and that that NFL Films package, the game of the week. I remember in the 70s and into the 80s trying to guess which game was going to be the game of the week because that would be that half-hour show where they would take a deep dive into that one game and and give you an extended description of what happened, and you couldn't get it anywhere else. And you'd get it like five days after the games were played. And then I remember when Inside the NFL, when it was on HBO, became a huge deal because that was a place where you could get extended highlights of every game, and it would be four days after the Sunday games, but we couldn't get enough of it. So... Those kinds of things produced by NFL Films were great conduits before the age of the internet where we could get the real highlights raw without the the orchestra music and the narration and the slow motion. And And there still is great value in those elements. But in this day and age where we consume everything immediately, I just feel like, you know, NFL Films was a useful tool to get us to the point where we could get access to any highlight anytime we want watch games back anytime we want to, to get to the point where the NFL was popular enough that now that we've arrived here, you have instant access NFL films during the years in the seventies, the eighties, the nineties, all pre-internet that, that really had a valuable role in growing the NFL and making it as popular as it became. All right, let's see what else we got here. Again, I do need to wrap this up. The real Forno, the excellent depth that the Vikings have at corner. Could the Vikings trade Xavier Rhodes so they can re-sign both Anthony Barr and Sheldon Richardson. If they did trade Rhodes, could they get a first-round pick in return? I don't know what they'd get for Xavier Rhodes. I'd have to look at his contract to see what the cap consequence would be. But the, the, Mike Hughes, assuming he comes back healthy from the torn ACL, Holton Hill, who was an undrafted uh, find uh, out of Texas, I believe, who has stepped in and played well. I don't know. Is Xavier Rhodes at the point where he costs more than what he's worth to the team. When he plays, he plays well. He does a lot of hand fighting down the field and can draw some penalties. And it seems like he's hurt all the time, although he finds a way to get himself back on the field. At some point, you got to have that conversation. At some point, you rip the name off the back of the jersey and you decide whether or not this person continues to justify the value that he is getting and the cap space that he is consuming. So I look... It's a, a great problem to have. I always say the only good problem to have is no problem, but it really would be a great problem to have to get to the point where you've got so many corners you can actually part with one because those are the those are the players that you, you hoard 
because you never have enough of them, especially in this day and age with all the guys out there who can generate big numbers in the passing game. Colin Deal, should the Chargers consider playing the playoff games in their old stadium? If they could, do you think the fans would welcome or reject the team? P.S. How'd your fantasy season turn out? Thanks, Colin. Smartass. I poked around to see whether or not they would move the L.A. Chargers games from the StubHub Center to the Coliseum, and they won't. That surprises me. I thought the NFL would mandate it because you can sell, what, 50,000, 60,000 more seats if they play the games in the Coliseum? They're going to stay at the StubHub Center. And apparently the name of the StubHub Center changes as of January 1. So they're going to be playing playoff games in a stadium we've never even heard of. But it's the 30,000-seat soccer venue, and that's where they're going to play. And they've got this year and next year. And then in 2020, it will be the Chargers and the Rams playing in the same stadium. And in theory, there may be a time when both teams are in the conference championship games and... In 2008, when the Jets and Giants were both good at the same time, Roger Goodell mentioned at some point that if both were hosting conference title games, it would be a Sunday night and a Monday night scenario. And I believe this. If the NFL ever had to do that, when they saw what the ratings performance was from that arrangement, they would do it every year. That they will generate far more millions by dominating those two days getting a Sunday night game that gets gigantic ratings, and then a Monday night game that gets gigantic ratings. And people said, what about Saturday, Sunday? Saturday night is the lowest night of the week for TV viewership. Sunday, Monday would make much more sense than Saturday, Sunday. And also, also, they like to give teams a full week from the divisional round into the conference championship round. You, in theory, could have a team that plays on Sunday that has to turn around and play on Saturday. And I think they want to avoid that for competitive reasons going into the game that has the Super Bowl berth on the line we'll be back with more pftpm after this quick break we're here with heidi king deputy administrator of the national highway traffic safety administration NHTSA is working hard to change habits and save lives during the holiday season tell us about drive sober or get pulled over NHTSA's national high visibility enforcement campaign drive sober or get pulled over will focus on raising public awareness of the dangers of drunk driving law enforcement agencies will be out in full force looking for impaired drivers from december 13th through december 31st do you have any safe driving tips for drivers during the holidays for many the holidays and holidays holiday parties involve alcohol. Be honest with yourself about how you celebrate and make plans to get home safely without getting behind the wheel. If your community has a sober ride program, make sure you use it and download NHTSA's Safer Ride mobile app from Google Play or Apple's iTunes store. It allows you to call a taxi or a predetermined friend and identifies your location so you can be picked up. For more information about the Drive Sober or Get Pulled Over campaign, visit NHTSA.gov slash Drive Sober. That's NHTSA.gov of slash drive sober see what else we have here terry gensler would a good alternative to the touchback rule be that the fumbling team gets the ball back at the original line and a loss of down if it's a kickoff or punt the ball goes to their own 25 or spot where the punt was received Uh, it's getting too complicated terry i i just think that the rule should be when a ball carrier loses possession of the ball forward and it goes out of bounds If it goes out of bounds, you get the ball at the spot where you fumbled, even if it goes out of the opposing end zone. Now, if it goes backward and it goes out of your own end zone, then it's a safety. But if it goes forward, if you fumble it forward and it goes out of bounds, you get the ball at the spot where you fumbled it, period. Because the defense has done nothing to secure possession of the ball. 
James McDonough, who do you think the source was for the Elway Mike Shanahan story? Was it Mike to keep his name fresh in the upcoming coaching carousel? I, I tend to think, as I said earlier, it was more about a trial balloon being floated by the the Broncos, maybe by Elway, maybe by someone else, to get the word out there now that, you know what, there may be a change with Vance Joseph. How close he was to being gone last year, and you know what, this year the team's not making it to the playoffs. What's the reaction? You know, if you put that out there and the reaction is, oh, no, you can't get rid of Vance. Oh, we can't get rid of Vance. we got to keep Vance. Then maybe they, maybe they keep Vance. Or it's just to get people ready for the idea that a change is coming so people aren't shocked when it occurs. Recliner QB, if we're seeing Father Time finally catch up with Tom Brady and this ends up being his last year or last year of being great, will trading Jimmy G be considered a horrible decision on the part of the Patriots? I, 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 don't, I don't know. I really don't know. If he doesn't play great or doesn't play at all next year, I think it will be fair to ask whether or not they should or do regret the trade of Jimmy Garoppolo. If nothing else, the performance from Tom Brady this year and the fact that he, like the rest of us, continued to get older every day, it underscores the urgency of finding someone else. And whether it's a a short-term bridge quarterback while you find the right rookie or you make the move necessary to get the right rookie. Hey, you know, the Patriots, maybe they need to have a bad year to put themselves in position to draft a great quarterback, or maybe they need to be willing to trade somebody. I remember joking around a couple years ago about the Patriots possibly trading Tom Brady to the 49ers late in his career. And you know, how would the fan base feel about it now? A year or two ago, I think the Patriots fans would have lost their minds. Not that the 49ers are a potential trade destination, and I don't know where Tom Brady would want to play, if he did have a chance to play for another team. But is there a team out there that would regard Tom Brady as an upgrade and also embrace the arrival of Tom Brady? I don't know what that would do financially. Is that going to sell a lot of tickets? Is that going to generate a lot of buzz? Or is it going to be like Joe Namath on the Chargers? Was it the Chargers? The Rams. Joe Namath on the Rams or Johnny Unitas on the Chargers? Is it just going to be kind of pathetic? Or will it be like Joe Namath on the Chargers? Joe Montana. Boy, I'm getting it all wrong. John Unitas on the Chargers. Joe Namath on the Rams. Joe Montana on the Chiefs. That worked out. That's the last time the Chiefs won a playoff game at home with Montana as the quarterback. All right. I've probably babbled for way too long. If I did not answer your question today, ask it tomorrow because I will try to do this again tomorrow. I appreciate your time, your support of the PFTPM podcast. Happy holidays if you don't check back in with us before next Tuesday, but but we'll be back. We're, we're not we're not shutting it down for the uh, the end of the year yet. And and oh by the way, oh by the way, next Monday, you know, I I had I had a a dilemma to resolve. I originally had planned to not do PFT live next Monday because we're not on TV. So it would have been radio only. But I wake up in Connecticut on Monday mornings and I thought, well, you know, it's a holiday kind of, and they have a best of show that they put together for NBC sports radio and they can just play that. And you know, who's really going to miss it. And I'll get home by 11 or 12. If I leave extra early from Connecticut instead of doing the show. And then, you know, as, as, as it got closer, it's like, you know, it's still a Monday after a slate of games. And people are going to want to have reaction, breakdown, analysis, whatever. So I decided that we will do PFT Live 
radio only from Connecticut. I'm sure Stats is pissed at me on Monday, Christmas Eve. And then at nine o'clock a.m. Eastern time, I'll head out, jump a plane and get home by the middle of the afternoon just in time to uh, have some uh, pancake batter with whiskey in it, which is basically what eggnog is. All right. Have a great day. We will do this again probably tomorrow. Ask your questions again tomorrow. Check us out on Wednesday's PFT Live. Chris Sims will be back and check us out around the clock at ProFootballTalk.com. Have a great day. You can find the PFTPM podcast on Art19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFTPM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk.